Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we'll discuss the battles raging across the east of Ukraine, report on the latest diplomatic spat between the European powers, and unpick the news of Vladimir Putin's latest weapon, the Satan II nuclear missile. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. Where Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's the 21st of April, day 57. And this afternoon, I'm joined by Dominic Nichols, the Telegraph's defence and security editor, Theo Mers, the Telegraph's deputy foreign editor, and Francis Dernley, assistant comment editor. I started by asking for the latest news from Mariupol. Yeah, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So Mariupol has been liberated, uh, apparently, So, in a, in a rather bizarre televised performance released this morning. And Putin was shown with his defence minister, General Sergei Shoigu. Um, Shoigu was reporting back to his boss saying Mariupol's liberated, um, oh, sorry, uh, virtually, virtually done. And he was talking about all sorts of weapons and, and tanks being uh, moved about. Um, and then uh, and then in his munificence, Putin says, no, 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 it's... it's it's liberated. Um, uh, there's no no point in, in pushing into the catacombs, and we need to preserve the the lives and health of our soldiers and officers. And uh, has basically halted halted the attack. Um, I mean, it, it's it's excruciating to watch. It's just so stage managed. Um, it's very interesting to watch. I think the, the the messaging that comes out of it, which we'll speak about in a moment, I'm I'm, I'm sure is. It, it says more than is actually um, actually on on view, but um, uh, we'll come back to it in a moment. I know I know Theo will have some have some views. Yeah, uh, it's it's difficult to tell from the video that we've seen from the Kremlin today about what is actually happening on the ground because, as Dom has said, there's um, Putin is is saying and Shoigu are, are saying that the city has been liberated, but also Putin saying we're not going to storm um, the the last places where Ukrainian forces are holding out and where they have been holding out for for several weeks. And we and all other media have written a lot about the, the last stand of, of Mariupol and it could be days, it could be hours until it falls. And, and that hasn't happened because there's been such 
fierce resistance there from the the Azov battalion and other Ukrainian and other Ukrainian troops. So it's it's hard to tell what has what has really changed. And it seems like what is coming out today may be more intended for a domestic audience in Russia or is likely more intended for a domestic audience that they're able to see Putin the peacemaker and Putin a, a, a reasonable leader who is saying okay we've achieved our well he's, he's saying that he's got a win he's saying that it's liberated we've achieved our objectives but also we're not going to have excessive bloodshed here and um, that's probably the the image he wants to project more than than a hawkish attacker of Ukraine well it's, it certainly is the image he wants to uh, project more than that he's framed this this whole conflict as as defending ukrainians and uh, purging them from from nazi elements but in terms of what that means in in the city of mariupol we don't really know dom do you want to expand on any of that yeah i think it's i I think it's a a um a recognition from russia that they're just well two things that they're just the juice ain't worth the squeeze they're just going to lose too many uh, fighters and too much equipment trying to squeeze that last pocket out of Mariupol, um, which which is tactically irrelevant. I mean, strategically, uh, an information in terms of the information campaign important, but in t- in terms of Russia having a land corridor from um, from Crimea to to uh, through the Donbass and up to the Russian border. I mean, that the last the last little bit of of the, the steel factory. I mean, that, that's, it is tactically irrelevant. So why they've been pressing it so hard for the last few weeks is about the symbolism. And we know Putin likes the symbolism. We've talked about May the 9th before, uh, and Mariupol was symbolic. But, but I think what he's done here is, is said that for the, for the eight or nine battalion tactical groups that, that Western officials say is being, is, are being soaked up there, I mean, he needs them in the Donbass. He uh, needs them to go north. Uh, and they're not going to be any, in any position to, any shape or position to do that any time soon. Um, but uh, but it speaks again of of the May the ninth date and this de- this desperation for a, for a victory. Um, I, I think it's very interesting that that he's coached it in these terms. Um, uh, Alexei Navalny's chief of staff, Alexei Navalny, the the prominent Russian um, opposition activist, uh, he was saying that that, you know, that Putin doesn't do anything with with such stage management or anything at all. Uh, without uh, really being clear about the message he wants to send out, and it's mainly for domestic opinion. And so he's saying here, this, in his munificence, he's, he's, he's sort of calling this, uh, calling the, the, the operation a success, and, and everyone fighting as a hero on the Russian side. Um, get the medals ready, get the medals ready, lads, um, and let's all let's all take a break and and head off somewhere else. I mean, you you should go and watch it. I don't I don't know if we've got the film actually up on the Telegraph website yet. I hope we do later. But but have a look around. You'll find it. You'll find it everywhere else. Everywhere else. Sorry about that. Um, but you know, do go and have a look at it. It's, it's just over a minute long. And I mean, Putin starts going on about well, you've got we we must ensure that uh, or you must ensure show you you must ensure that uh, all the all the wounded are treated correctly in accordance. And he uses this phrase in accordance with international legal rights. I mean, he's preparing. He's preparing his defence for the ICC in plain in plain view. It's just absolutely extraordinary. But I mean, as much as symbolism matters to him, it will also matter to to the Ukrainians. And I mean, this has been a stout defence by them. I mean, incredible defence. And it was it was going to go down in 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 folklore along with the uh, along with the Russian warship, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and now they're they're going to 
live. I think it's just ex- extraordinary. Russia's shown itself not not too concerned about dropping heavy ordnance on civilian areas. So saying that he's doing this to spare the civilians that are that are also in the factory, I think is is a bit rubbish. Um, I just I just think it was too hard a nut to crack, and they he realised he's got to get on. He needs something um, soon, and I and I think it does give more credence that the May the ninth date is very very important to him. But um, it, it is a, a very bizarre a very bizarre um, state of affairs, and uh, and yes, the the we'll be writing about it later on today. But the language between Putin and Shoigu. Uh, ordering this, ordering the halt. It's just, it's clearly for for another audience, mainly domestic, but I think also, as I said, mainly for, or partly also for, um, you know, for the international sort of legal community. But I urge everyone to go and to, to go and have a look at the look at the video. I would just echo that that this is now become not. Um, rather ironically, given that we were talking about it yesterday, a symbolic battle more than a military one. Um, we were speaking about the Battle of Stalingrad and how um, the last stand in that battle by the German forces when surrounded by the Soviets uh, was in a tractor factory. And so obviously we are, as I say, seeing a parallel here, given that this is in a steel factory. Um, I'm wondering as well whether perhaps Vladimir Putin has realised that, um, you know, he, he, as we know, he's very conscious of, of his historical parallels and and uh, whether he is, is rather concerned about uh, about them holding out for longer than anticipated and so has made the maneuver of effectively invalidating the significance of of Mariupol being won round or 100 percent um, and to just declare it prematurely knowing that if it becomes a if, if he were to um, make a big propaganda deal about um, defeating these final this 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 last stand that he may well be dragged into a much more prolonged delay than he would like in taking Mariupol, and we'll come later on into the other areas in which I think that that many of his pronouncements in the last twenty four hours are for a domestic audience, not least on the nuclear um, uh, declarations yesterday, which I think we'll cover in depth. Um, but as as just to echo what, what as I say what Dom and Thea were saying, this is really in, in, in not about military anymore. Um, this is now symbolic. And the danger is that when the, the politicians see symbols often as being far more significant than military, and that goes back from the Second World War to, 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 to Napoleon in Moscow, and, uh, and, and often it has severe ramifications. And perhaps we're seeing um, that, that, that Putin is trying to, to learn from that, but I, I wouldn't bank on it. Thank you very much, Francis. What else is going on in away from Mariupol across the Donbass? What else should we be aware of uh, in the last 24 hours, Theo and Dom? So there's been a lot of shelling around Kramatorsk. Kramatorsk, you'll remember, is the town um, in the on the edge of the Donbass. It was uh, subject to that horrific attack on the 8th of April with, with all, uh, a number of civilians or thousands. It was expected or, or estimated thousands of civilians trying to get out of the town, trying to get on trains to head west. Um, and the ballistic missile strike killed at the moment, 59, um, hundreds wounded, an appalling attack on the 8th of April. But that town is is uh, going under uh, more rocket attacks at the moment. And there are reports of Russian troops advancing from staging areas to the east of, of that town. So, uh, again, as we've seen, this this phase, this this Donbass phase, um, gaining a little bit of momentum. We're, we're still not still not there yet. These are these are small gains led by uh, very heavily by artillery and 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 air rocket missile fire, um, which is straight out of the textbook of uh, the Russian textbook about how to do this stuff. So we've yet to see 
any proper combined arms manoeuvre. So uh, infantry tanks working in concert with engineers and artillery and all the rest of it, all the, the whole, all, all the, the, the different parts uh, being brought to bear. It's still kind of just grinding down with artillery, and then moving into the into the rubble afterwards. But that's happening around Kremotorsk. Um, and I've got some interesting stuff from Mikolaev, which I'll, I'll just pause there in case they wants to add anything else. But um, uh, also Mikolaev coming under pressure in a moment. I think I think the other thing of note this morning, or the other thing from the Ukrainian side this morning, is um, uh, Ukraine saying that if if possible, it will strike the Crimean bridge, which is um, a, a Russian-built bridge. It cost them about three point seven billion dollars, and it's um, the lo- the longest bridge in Europe. Big strategic significance in that it links the south of Russia to Crimea and allows them to um, to bring equipment and troops into Ukraine from from Russia to use in this to use in this offensive and also it's a, a massive project of Putin he opened it personally 4 years ago I think and it was uh, one of the, uh, the uh, national security advisors of Ukraine was asking allies for for weapons to to strike it saying it would solve a lot of their their problems if if that could happen not saying that there's any movement on that at the moment but it's obviously a, a notable thing that they are that they're saying this the Kremlin has responded as you might expect very badly to it accusing ukraine of calling for for terrorist acts so that may be something to look for in the in the weeks to come thank you theo um dom you said you had some thoughts on what's happening in mikhailov yeah so i've been chatting over over social media with david patrick Karakos, who's a who's a journalist out there at the moment and he's um he's had a fascinating interview with it with the mayor so mikhailov uh in the south on the route to odessa uh, under extreme pressure, but not not um, occupied at the moment by Russian forces. They are they're very close by on the on the eastern side. Uh, tried to envelop or, or at least go around Mikolaev to get towards Odessa and was repulsed. That was about two or three weeks ago, and that seems to be where the where the edge of the Russian expansion to the northwest of Crimea um, has got. So Mikolaev is just to the north of Hezon, the the, the town that is the, the, the first the first city that was taken by Russia and is now in very disputed territory. So Mikolaev has been under a lot of shelling for for weeks now. There are water shortages. Um, so David has, has put out a long a long Twitter thread. Uh, I urge you to read, talking about the um, the water shortages there and how the, the the population having to get their supplies from tankers. But he interviewed the mayor. And, uh, and the mayor was a, fa- a fairly bullish character, um, as you'd imagine. And, and he said uh, he moves constantly. He doesn't sleep in the same place for two nights in a row. And then said, all I need is my gun and a place to wash. Um, the mayor says he's been getting messages from Russia since the start of the war. These messages saying surrender or face the, face the fate of Mariupol. And uh, the mayor said, I told them either go home uh, and live or come here and die. Welcome to hell, melon farmers. And for those of you that know your Cinema and um, melon farmers is not the word that the mayor used, but the word that um, Hollywood used to dub dub over um, at various stages of uh, various movies. Um, and the mayor says that, that that the Russian forces are are unmotivated; they're fighting for a cause they don't they don't either understand or don't believe in. And he said the Ukrainians are over motivated. So very 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 bullish uh, defence there from the mayor of, of um, Mikolaev. And there's more of that, more 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 information from him uh, in his interview with David Patrick Karakos, uh, which you can, you can find on Twitter. But yeah, so Mikolaev has been bearing the brunt uh, for weeks now, as of many, many other cities, but it's, um, it, it's pushed, helped to push back 
that that advance um, west to Odessa and north to Dnipro, and they've they've absolutely been um, been taking a pounding. But doesn't doesn't feel like doesn't sound like the defence there is is wavering at all. Last night, Vladimir Putin uh, boasted that he had unleashed the first successful test of a new nuclear missile known as the Satan II, carrying a dozen warheads. Um, can we talk a little bit about what? what this what this missile is how it works and as always with these questions about russia what does this show us about the strength of the russian position yes well it's ironic that we were talking about yesterday that as the situation gets likely more desperate for the russian forces uh, that we can expect another proclamation from Vladimir Putin about the use of nuclear warheads against NATO. And so it has proved that within a matter of hours that he's done exactly that. So as you say, this is the first successful test of a new nuclear missile known rather charmingly as Satan II, um, which carries a, a dozen warheads um, that could be used to strike multiple targets um, around the world. It's a 200-ton intercontinental ballistic missile, and he describes it as, um, quote, a present to NATO. Um, that would make the uh, Moscow's enemies think twice. Um, obviously, it comes at, at, a, at a, a significant moment strategically in, in the war in Ukraine. Um, and he claims, Putin, that it's capable of overcoming all of the modern means of anti-missile de- defence um, and that it's a, a unique weapon that will strengthen the combat, and I'm quoting here, strengthen the combat potential of our armed forces, reliably ensuring Russia's security from external threats and providing food for thought for those who, in the heat of frenzied aggressive rhetoric, try to threaten our country. Um, Just to give a sense of of, of what this, uh, supposedly this weapon would be capable of doing, it can travel uh, around 11,000 miles from where it's fired and from Russia's extreme western border, you could expect that it would be able to hit a city like like London in about 13 minutes. So um, it is yet to be deployed. The intention is that it would be deployed at the end of the year. So it's not like he's announced that this is actually a weapon that can be utilised. But what is the significance of this? Well, ultimately, as we were just talking about, this has been designed, this announcement, I think, for a domestic audience at home um, and also obviously to concern the Western powers about uh, the amount of military support that they provide to the Ukrainian forces. But as we've talked about, this May the 9th deadline, which is getting close, and Putin needs to build up this idea that the war is going well back at home before this big parade in Moscow um, on the uh, on the ninth, and uh, and so I think that we shouldn't read perhaps as much into it as um, as perhaps we might be tempted to as we were in the early stages of the of the war. Um, I think it is not a a, a, a a threat tomorrow, as it were, although, of course, that, that would change if that he were to use the already conventional nuclear weapons in, in Russia on some sort of targeted strike on Kiev, as we spoke about yesterday. Um, but I think that the, the, the curious parallel, I spoke about a parallel earlier on with World War Two, and I, I think that it just struck me this, um, that... He's developing this new n- nuclear missile, and um, for which is largely for uh, a, a, a domestic audience, and also to try and enhance the strategic position of of, of Russia long term. And it was exactly this thinking uh, that that took hold, I suppose, of of the um, Nazi hierarchy at the end of the Second World War in 1944 and 1945. As the war took a dark turn, Hitler became absolutely convinced that um, the the way to win the war would be to spend 
millions of um, of marks on funding German science and modern warfare um, capabilities and genuinely believed that sort of this fantastic weaponry could reverse the war in in one stroke and uh, and that the the key to any future success in military engagements was going to be these new futuristic weapons and uh, the result of this was a complete technical disaster. It was a shortage of resources. It was constant political interference when um, more focused on conventional conventional warfare should have been the priority. Um, obviously, you've, you're faced with the inherent, inherent difficulty of accelerating research work um, at the forefront of science whilst you've got, you know, resources that are limited and everything else. So, um, with the Allies, in, in in contrast, stuck with the conventional weapons of the late 1930s, but but with the exception of, of the Manhattan Project. And that obviously proved to be a far more sounder strategy. So you can see from what I'm saying here is that there are several ac- echoes and parallels, I think, with what we're seeing in Ukraine, that as the situation is getting more desperate, as conventional warfare seems to be failing, that, that suddenly Putin is looking to more advanced forms of warfare um, that, could, that could sort of show NATO who's boss, if I can articulate it in that that way. Um, but it's a very, very uh, dangerous path and a similar mistake to one strategically that, that Hitler made in the, 19, uh, in the 1940s. And I think perhaps the way of just thinking about this, and I'm, I'm, I'm quoting here from Richard Overy, who wrote a fantastic book where I recommend to people about why the Allies won, and it dispels many myths about why World War II um, went the way that it did. Um, he says, in the end, the Soviet army proved just modern enough but the German forces were far too modern for their own good. And what he means by that is that this focus on trying to be modern, trying to be cutting edge, ultimately undermined the uh, German military efforts. And I think that we may well be seeing same with Russia here. And of course, it's a mistake they also made in the Cold War, trying to develop the most advanced forms of nuclear warfare, bankrupting the economy, and ultimately uh, it leading to, to a complete implosion um, in 1989 and beyond. Thanks, Francis. Uh, Theo and Dom, wondering what you have to add to that. I think the only thing to add is that we that we note it, note this, and move on. I think Francis's points that he made there are the areas we should focus on. That this is, um, I think, mainly for domestic consumption in Russia to to sort of shore up uh, or divert attention from a from a poor performance in in Ukraine. Um, I mean, it's the new car on the on the driver when you look out the window. So yeah, it's bigger, it's faster, it goes further. It's got it's got more bombs on board. But but let, let's talk numbers for a moment. So the Sarmat missile itself, that's just the truck, right? That just carries the nuclear missiles. Now in inside it, that it can carry supposedly carry some of these hypersonic glide glide vehicles. But in terms of nuclear bombs itself, nuclear weapons, um, they say. I mean, the, the numbers are sketchy. Russia don't really put out put out many numbers, but it's thought that there's there's any number to, between. Um, sort of 10 big nuclear missiles and 15 small. I, I don't think there's much of a, a distinction between big and small when you're talking about nuclear weapons. But anyway, so let's, let's take the, the 10, which are the biggest. These are, um, they're called MIRVs, which is multiple independently targetable re-entry vehicles. So they are individual nuclear weapons on the, in their own right. They don't just fall ballistically. They can be targeted to different uh, to different locations. So the, the, uh, the 10... Mervs that could be carried by this uh, by this thing, each have the explosive power of 750 kilotons. Now, for comparison, Hiroshima was uh, 15 kilotons. So these are massive, massive, massive weapons, huge, huge explosions. Um, you know, very devastating, absolutely horrific. Uh, hopefully, hopefully you never get used. Now, the the current British nuclear deterrent. We have four 
nuclear-powered, nuclear-armed submarines, one of which is always on patrol. For, for the last 53 years, there's been a, a, a nuclear-armed um, submarine somewhere around the world uh, at every moment of every day, for the last 53 years, ready to, to launch Britain's nuclear deterrent should the, should the order um, be given. Now, those boats, and I've been on, been on one of them, um, they have 16 launch tubes. At the moment, we're told that they're not, they, they don't go to sea uh, with them all full. We're, we're told you know, through very cagey tones, we expect about eight of the tubes are, are, have got a missile in at any one time. But each of those missiles, as I say, that's just the truck. Each of those missiles, the British missiles, have eight MIRVs, eight of these multiple independent re-entry vehicles in. And the British uh, MIRVs are each thought to be about, again, numbers are sketchy. The Ministry of Defence and the government never, never talk about nuclear stuff. Um, but each of the British MIRVs are thought to be about 100 kilotons. As, as I said, Hiroshima was about 15. So 100 kilotons is, is itself a, a horrific number. Uh, to consider. Um, the range is about you know, nearly 5,000 miles and the, the Sarmat has a range of about 11,000 miles. So, so yes, yeah, so this new, the new missile that Russia uh, unveiled yesterday can go further and it's got, a, uh, each of the MIRVs have a lot more uh, destructive power. But I mean, that doesn't, that, that doesn't mean that, that everything else is suddenly rendered useless. There's still broad, broadly comparable numbers between the US and Russia in terms of their destructive power. Um, France, Britain and China are much lower. So we have about anywhere between 180 and 220 um, weapons uh, available. We're thought, thought to be similar for France, maybe slightly more for, for China. We're not entirely sure. But I mean, these, these are horrific weapons. They're, they're massively powerful. So, so it's largely, I don't, we don't need to get too wrapped up on the top trumps about all this. And yes, this new thing that Russia showed off yesterday is, as I say, it's a new car out on the forecourt. But I mean, Br Britain at the moment, we're, we're, we're upgrading the submarines. So the dreadnought program is going to introduce an, uh, four new nuclear armed subs in the 2030s. We are currently, we've already committed to buying a new missile. The missile we use, the Trident 2 D5 missile, which is an American missile. Um, we're upgrading that. The warhead, uh, which is British made, we're upgrading that. So, so I mean, this is what armies do. Militaries, you regularly update, you update your stocks. And of course, the new thing is going to be bigger, shinier, look a lot, look a lot better, have a nice badge and all the rest of it, much more than the, the one you're getting rid of. So we don't need to worry about this, uh, the, the Sarmat missile from Russia in terms of, oh, my goodness, we've never seen anything like this before. Yes, we have. We've been living with it for decades now. They are horrendous and we, we hope never to never to entertain their employment. Um, the numbers have, have gone up. But like I say, that's not what, what's the, the bit we need to focus on here. The bit we need to focus on here is why was it unveiled yesterday and all this chatter about um, hitting NATO? And, and of course, the, the compliant Kremlin media have gone do lally about this and, and said it's, you know, it's all wonderful and we should launch them immediately and so on and so forth. I think the point to note is, as Francis said, this is a bit like the Nazi super weapons of the Second World War. This is a diversionary tactic. Um, and, and, and want to deflect opinion from a fairly poor, poor performance um, in Ukraine. Thanks, Dom. Theo and Francis, any comments on that before we move on? Just one last one from me, which is just very aware, as, as, as Dom was saying and, and speaking about these weapons is, and we're very right to do so because this is you know, vitally important, but it just speaks to another huge and tragic consequence of this war that we have effectively returned to the Cold War. <laughs> you know, comparing the sizes of these heinous weapons is... Uh, 
just something that we thought we had moved on from, I think. And yet here we are, that due to the sabre rattling of Vladimir Putin and his illegal invasion of Ukraine, we have returned to a different way of thinking about warfare. And uh, it just feels archaic to me. And uh, I think it's just, as I say, a, a, a point that's worth making that... Uh, we, he has opened the floodgates of a way of thinking about weapons that I think many people, many historians have thought that we'd perhaps close the door on for the betterment of humanity. Thank you, Francis. Let's talk a little bit more about Germany. We spoke about... Oh, sorry, Theo, did you want to come in on that? I just saw you unmuted. Please, please do. Oh, no, well, uh, well, I was just going to say that already uh, Biden in, in the States is getting some criticism for, for lack of funding or, or cuts to America's nuclear program, which I, I think does just speak into this Cold War stockpiling mentality, whether those criticisms are, are legitimate or not. This, this idea that is around that because Russia has unveiled this new weapon, then the US um, should should do the same or should be or should be matching it in some way. So that criticism certainly speaks to what Francis has been talking about. Thank you very much, Theo. Um, let's talk a little bit about Germany. We spoke about Germany yesterday. And if you listen to this podcast regularly or listen on Twitter yesterday, um, you'll know that. Um, Germany has sort of hit back a little bit at some of the accusations it's not doing enough to help Ukraine. Uh, Theo and Francis, can you talk us through what's been happening and what what people have been saying? Yeah, well, um, Olaf Scholz has come under... The German Chancellor has come under pressure um, domestically and internationally to to do more to help Ukraine, to to send heavy weapons in the same way that the US and the UK and, and others have been have been doing and he he gave a, a press conference a couple of days ago i think just as um the uk and and us were were announcing new heavy weaponry that were going that was very very cautious and um saying that well we're not, we're not going to send anything directly but the but ukraine can buy from us if if they want and we've alerted the german military to that and it was all it was all very uh, cautious and and coded and he's the the army have have backed the german army have backed him up on this but there's been a, a lot from opposition politicians in germany and even members of his own coalition saying that we really must do more and now um germany is pointing to to the UK and and saying, well, the UK isn't sending these particular type of of weapons or this this particular type of hardware, and why that, why aren't they getting the criticism that that we are getting? And I think it it all speaks to a, a long running perception or, or reality of Germany's role uh, since this conflict uh, has begun, or even before it began, that it wasn't doing as much practically to help Ukraine because it is so reliant on Russian energy and traditionally has these quite relatively close ties for Russia to Russia and not wanting to upset the Kremlin because of these business links uh, or not wanting to upset the Kremlin in, in the way that some other some other countries will do. And I think that culminated last week when um, Zelensky said that the the German president wasn't welcome to visit Kiev um, at the same time that a lot of other European leaders and, and Boris Johnson were doing so because of their, their stance on the conflict. Thanks, Theo. I don't know if Francis or Dom wants to come in on, on uh, especially the, the, the criticism that they're not sending the, the, these, these um, weapons. Is, is that fair or, or is it more that allies are sort of sending what they can send? 
Well, there's 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 some con- con- contradictory things coming out uh, from from Germany and from other sources as to whether they are able to send these tanks, whether they they would be able to be fitted in time, and whether they actually would be would, would want to give them away anyway in case there were some sort of escalation of the war. Um, but my point would just be to reiterate some of those we were making yesterday on Germany. I know we had an ex- extended segment on Germany yesterday, um, which is it seems to me that that that. that Germany are, in a sense, stuck because of their reliance on Russian oil and gas, and because, to Theo's point about uh, the, the 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 diplomatic closer ties forged during the Merkel era um, with uh, with with Russia, but ultimately they need to wake up, I think, to the new reality um, that every day that Germany is sending the vast amount. And of course, they're not the only country that are guilty of this, as we've spoken about in the past. But every day that they are sending the amount of money that they are sending to Ukraine, uh, sorry, to uh, to Russia, is funding the atrocities that are taking place on Europe's doorstep and, of course, on Germany's doorstep. And this sort of hand-wringing middle way that it seems that 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 Schultz is trying to um maneuver I think will be very harshly judged by history ultimately one has when you one is facing existential threats like this you have to come down on one side or another um according to the judgment of history look at Churchill in 1940 um look at Zelensky one could argue in the in the opening days of this conflict uh and if you make the wrong call, you will go down history as, 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 have, as having made that, just as Chamberlain has done, rightly or wrongly. And, and I think that they seriously need to consider their policy. And I think there is, that take, there is evidence that is taking place within Germany. There's been a lot of criticism of Schultz, um, not only from the journalists, from journalists there, but also from, from other politicians. But it just seems to me that they have through a, a ill-conceived foreign policy built over many years that they are in essentially in a very, very difficult uh, situation and one that no country, and this is a warning to all of countries around the world, that no country really wants to be in, which is that you are so reliant on effectively a hostile power that one's ability to adapt and survive is severely hampered. And so there's, I think there's a warning to all of us there. Thanks, Francis. Dom, I know you want to come in on this. Yeah, I'll just add that uh, uh, when this when this broke yesterday, this spat about the German Marder uh, infantry fighting vehicle, um, it kind of did the did the rounds. I um, I rang the the German defence attaché here in London, so Brigadier General Michael Obenayer, just to just have a chat with him. And I mean, he wasn't wasn't massively defensive. I don't think he felt particularly bruised by it. He was a bit bit more bewildered, really. I mean, there are very good reasons um, why you. You should give all, all the kit you can to to Ukraine if you if you want to help them in this war. And there are also many reasons why why it's just just not practical. And 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 he was he was echoing the line from from Berlin about why it's it's not practical for these uh, to send a, a load of Marder infantry fighting vehicles. Said so they, they've upgraded Germany has upgraded to to a vehicle called Puma. So so Marder is going out of service, but they still use them and they still need them and they still train on them. Um, and they're quite old now, so they use a lot of the fleet. They cannibalise a lot of the fleet to keep the ones going in, in the training fleet that they do need. So he was feeling, a, like I say, not, he wasn't he wasn't bruised. He wasn't defensive at all. He was just sort of explaining the explaining the realities. But he did he did make make the very good point. He said, "Well, what about the, the 
the British Army's warrior. I mean, we've just ca- we just cancelled the warrior um, upgrade program, capability sustainment program. We go, we're going over to Boxer and Ajax. Um, so there's there's hundreds of warrior infantry fighting vehicles that are currently in Lugashaw, covered in grease, waiting for the waiting for the day to uh, to come out and fight. Um, he said, "Well, why why hasn't Britain offered those?" Which is a, a fair point. And I, you know, I wasn't there to defend the MOD, but I didn't have an answer to that. He said, "What about the French? The French the French AMX vehicles? There's, there's other there's other vehicles there." Um, around uh, around the bazaars, around uh, the NATO and other and other countries that, that are available. I mean, it'd be, be very interesting to hear from um, somebody from the British uh, MOD or or uh, someone from the the French diplomatic corps, perhaps, uh, who might want to opine on this. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's, we can all point the finger, um, and uh, Germany is in a testing position. I do accept France's point that uh, that Schultz probably need needs to needs to make a call one way or the other um uh, on the military side uh, but um but yeah it's not we shouldn't we shouldn't just draw all this down and focus on as we did a few weeks ago 29 migs from poland and now 25 marda vehicles from germany there are there are there, there are there's a lot of a lot of tunes to play on on all of this um but i was just it was just interesting to, to chat to uh, general logan i yesterday and um got a few, few of his comments in, in an article in today's telegraph um, just one far, final thought on that. Um, I've had a, a direct message a moment ago from a listener who's made the point that Germany actually provided tanks to Tur- Turkey um, in their uh, sort of genocide against the Kurds. So not necessarily the best um, uh, previous experience of deploying of deploying tanks, but it just shows that in the past they have been very willing to... Uh, um, I need to do some more reading about this, but it, it does need to, to do some more... Um, uh, that there has been evidence in the past of them of, of them giving tanks to, to to foreign nations, and it seems a shame that they're not capable of doing so now. Thank you very much, Francis, and thank you, Dom, and thank you, Theo. Um, one more thing to talk about, I think, before we wrap up is that it is three years since uh, Volodymyr Zelensky was elected president of Ukraine. Theo, you put these these notes in. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, what what, what an anniversary for him. Yeah, I, I saw this on, on social media that it, it had been three years and I, I sort of recoiled from the screen because I, I couldn't believe how much has changed in, in that time. Um, I, was, I was in Ukraine for those elections uh, three years ago and at the, at the time it really seemed or there was a, a lot of, of people who voted for him as a sort of none of the above candidates that they were so sick of the traditional Ukrainian parties that they saw as as corrupt or problematic in in different ways that they would literally elect a comedian who played the president in a in a tv series to be president and a lot of uh, people that I spoke to there really sort of despaired at that idea and thought is this really what we've come to and we're we're such a we're such a joke and um it's a it's a joke that we've that we've elected this man and how much has has changed since then that he's such a celebrated international figure now uh, and also he's he's so supported in ukraine because of the way that he has led the resistance and uh, led the the response to this war and a, a lot of people there now saying that they couldn't have imagined having one of those people from the traditional parties 
in charge. So it has no significance on on the ground and no real significance in in the war. But I just thought that was an anniversary worth noting how this global statesman, I suppose, has been formed in such a short amount of time. And we and others have written about how in some ways his TV background has uh, has aided that. Not only is he an actor who can uh, perform these roles, obviously not saying that he's he's performing the he's pretending in any way the role that he's that he's doing now, but he is able to get his message across in a very polished way. And also a lot of his team is from the world of television and are able to use comms really expertly and in a much more accessible and possibly effective way than the Kremlin does, which also, of course, has a, has a massive PR operation of its own. Thank you, Theo. Uh, Francis and Dom, any, any comments on that before we before I'll ask you for your final thoughts? Well, I don't wish to be uh, crass about this at all, um, um, but somebody put it to me and I thought it just it was such a interesting way of articulating it that it stuck with me, which is somebody said that, you know, from the the equivalent of, of Zelensky being uh, going down in, in, in history in the way that he has from his background it would be the equivalent of um, many people listening will be familiar with the uh, um, with the film Love Actually and Hugh Grant playing the British Prime Minister and that as a, you know, uh, not not exactly a fool, but not 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 certainly not a Churchillian figure. And it would be the equivalent of the actor Hugh Grant being elected prime minister and then going down in history as our next Churchill. I mean, it is an extraordinary story. You you literally couldn't make it up. And um, but I th- I completely echo what Theo was saying is that I think that sort of fate has been very kind in that it has given uh, Ukraine a figure um, able to use modern forms of technology, whether it be TV, social media, incredibly effectively in a way that has mobilised the world to the Ukrainian cause that would not have been possible even 10 years ago. And so um, it is a remarkable story and one that I think will have um, many lessons to leaders around the world. Um, and let's just hope that, that this war will end and that you know Zelensky will, will be able to be on the world stage for a long time because I think we need figures like him that can articulate the value and and the meaning of freedom to millions, billions Thank you Francis So um, I think we've come to the end of our time here so can I just ask all of our guests for their thoughts on the days ahead, what should our listeners be looking for in in the next stage of this war Well I'm sorry I'm sounding a bit repetitive but as I said yesterday and probably the day before that, it's just the Donbass yet to see any any evidence that Russia has learnt lessons and are able to conduct really good combined arms manoeuvre warfare there, um, integrating all the various parts of the military. So still still just grinding its way up Route 1 with, with led by artillery and then going and sticking a flag on the rubble afterwards. So, so uh, that's what I'm keeping an eye on. I think what we'll be keeping an eye on is what actually happens in Mariupol now, because even though Putin has said that it's liberated and they're not going to storm the final holdouts of resistance that of course doesn't necessarily mean that they won't storm the final holdouts of resistance so i think still a a lot of attention there even if the kremlin are trying to present this as as a, a closed case ukraine the latest is an original podcast from the telegraph to stay on top of all of our ukraine news analysis and dispatches from the ground Subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or 
sign up to Dispatches, our daily Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly with us by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and on Twitter, Sophie Coe.